Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. And that song is what we're going to talk about today, living the life that Jesus lived, following the way that he has prescribed for us. If you will, take your copy of Scripture and turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible or need one or would like an ESV version of the Bible, the one I read out of, uh, in each of the, at least the rows here on the main level, there is a Bible in front of you in the, in the seat back. And if you need that to read, that would be great. Uh, if you want to take that and use that, if you need, um, if you don't have a physical copy of Scripture, I would encourage you to take one. But if you don't have a physical copy of Scripture, one of the things you can do with your smartphone is download an app that will kind of give you that same text of Scripture. It's a good way to, to follow along. Uh, And we're going to look today at a passage of Scripture where Jesus tells us who we are to be as his followers. That's what he speaks about in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48. He's talking about the life he wants us to live. Those that are part of his, his kingdom, those that are citizens in his kingdom, this is what he expects of us. We're going to begin at the end of the text. Matthew 5, 48 reads this. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. As we walk through this text of Scripture, we're going to look at one practice, one principle, and six different pictures that Jesus uses to explain or illustrate that practice and that principle. If you don't hear anything else in the sermon today, hear this. The expected practice that Jesus invites his followers to put into place is that we're to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. He expects those that are following him to trust him, to walk with him, to seek him. That's what he expects. Now, we read that, and we kind of interpret that as sinless perfection. That's not the word that's used. The word that's used that that Jesus indicates here in perfect carries with it the idea of mature or complete, whole, is really what he's getting at. We are to be perfect and whole as our Heavenly Father is whole, is perfect. In other words, as we look at these six pictures throughout chapter 5, we're going to discover that Jesus wants us to be righteous. He wants us to be perfect, that is complete, in our hands, that is what we do, and in our heart, that is what motivates us. He wants us to be right in our ways and in our wants. He wants us to be right in our deeds and in our desires. It's not enough... For us to be like the Pharisees and religious leaders and concentrate merely on the outside. And that's what Jesus is getting at in this text. We cannot just concentrate on how we look to other people. God is interested in more than how we look to other people. He's interested in how are we really on the inside. Who are we really as a person? So the one practice is that you and I are to be perfect or complete, whole, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. There's a principle that undergirds that. It's this Jesus deepening of the law, and that's what he does here in the text. Jesus deepening of the law in the Sermon on the Mount was not given as the means for entering the kingdom, but to distinguish citizens of the kingdom from the world. It's important that we grasp this. The law in the Old Testament was not an entry point into a relationship with God. When God gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, he began that by saying, I am the Lord your God, I redeemed you, now live this way because you're my people. 
It, that is exactly what Jesus is saying, just in a deeper sense, in a deeper way. He's not telling us that the entry point into heaven or entry point into the kingdom is for you and I to fully and completely and perfectly practice the Sermon on the Mount. If he did that, we would be hopeless. Because the Sermon on the Mount, particularly these six pictures that Jesus is going to offer to us, rub up against not only our outward behavior, they rub up against our character and our heart and what we desire and who we are. So they're not intended as a means of getting into the kingdom. What they are is for those of us that are in the kingdom. For those that, as we looked last week have, or the week before, have, have looked and said, we, we admit that we are sinners, we repent of our unrighteousness and turn to Christ. For those of us that are willing to say that we are broken in spirit, that we are spiritually impoverished and we come to Christ and we've sought Him and we've trusted Him, what He expects of those of us that are His followers is to live according to the pictures that He's presented here in the text. God wants us to look different. He expects that if Jesus is inside of us, if He has transformed us spiritually, that you and I as Christians will look different. And so I, I, I say that to, to kind of prepare us, some of these pictures that Jesus gives us are going to convict us. Some of them are going to rub up against our behaviors and, and, our, and our heart and the way we're acting and what we want and see. Sometimes that's going to challenge us. Jesus wants to make us not like we were. He wants to make us into a person that looks like Him. So let's look at the six pictures that Jesus uses to explain the, the practice that we're to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, and undergird the principle that He's given us that it's the means by which we look like a follower of Jesus living this way. 521, He's going to deal with the picture of anger. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny." Folks, it is obvious that you and I are not to be murderers. In fact, if I asked you this question, there's probably not a person in the room that would have to raise their hand and say that they are guilty of murder. But what Jesus does in these pictures is he gives us an accessible and a concrete picture of what it means to be a genuine follower of Jesus. And he undergirds the concept of murder with the idea of anger. Essentially what he's saying is that if you have anger, if anger is a sinful behavior in your life, it is sinful just like murder is sinful. Jesus is deepening the law by not just exploring the outward actions but by exploring the heart. There were lots of people in Jesus' audience that day, Pharisees and religious leaders particularly, who thought they were right before God because they were not murderers. What Jesus is getting at is the fact that if they have anger in their hearts and lives, they're guilty of being sinful. They're guilty of being wrong before God. Let me ask you a question. Is there anyone in the room that would hold their hand up and say they're not guilty of the sin of anger? 
It is a sin that permeates all of our lives and all of our behaviors. Nearly every single one of us at different times in the last 24 hours have struggled with areas of anger in our lives. And that's what Jesus is getting at. He wants us to understand that it's not just okay if we're not murderers. That's great. We don't need to be murderers. But we need to be people who are right before God in the area of anger. And he explains what he's getting at here. He talks about calling someone a fool. He's not, he's not using the, the terminology to describe someone's behavior as, say, the book of Proverbs does. Proverbs calls lots of people fools for the way they behave. This gets at more the, 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 the vein of contempt. It, it would be like, in contemporary language, us saying something like this, you bleeping idiot, you fill in the bleeping. You moron, or something of the like. It carries with it the idea of anger and contempt and vitriol at someone that has wronged us or someone we don't like or someone who has crossed paths with us. Folks, this is something that is possible for every single person in the room. David Platt put it this way. He said, it is possible to maintain a hatred toward my wife. We could read in that spouse. Bitterness toward my children, jealousy toward my neighbor, all while technically never killing them or harming them in any physical way. And Jesus says that is not the proper action and attitude for the person who is the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Anger ought not be a part of who they are. And then he gives some prescriptions for what we're to do about that. He says, if you're in a situation where you find yourself at odds with a brother or sister and you're at temple and you're offering sacrifice, so he's using illustrations of his own day when they would gather for worship, bringing a sacrifice to the altar. If you're in that situation and you find yourself at odds with somebody, leave the sacrifice. Leave the worship service, go make something right with that other person. Why? Because anger is not to be the defining characteristic of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's not who we're to be. That would be akin for us today to do something like this. If you gather with the church and get ready to participate in the Lord's table, and you realize that there is someone that you're at odds with, and you need to make that right, it would not be wrong for you not to participate in the Lord's table in that moment, and go make it right before you participate in the table. It would not be, it would not be wrong for you as a Christian before you gathered for, for worship with us as a body of believers to call somebody up and make things right if, if that, if that uh, wrong or that irreconciliation that was going on was keeping you from being able to worship. God wants us to be different. He wants us to go deeper than the norm for our human experience. Folks, anger is a normal part of human life. And Jesus says that is not to be the way the citizen of the kingdom of heaven lives. I realize sometimes somebody's going to pull out in front of you and you're going to get angry. I realize some of you are, are given, like me, to, to really pull for, for sports teams. And when they are not playing well, it's easy to be angry watching the TV. Not, that doesn't work. That doesn't help them or us or anybody. But... You know people who are angry at watching sporting events. It's easy if you're a parent to be angry at your kids when they don't listen the first, second, or seventh time that you talk to them. It's easy as a husband or wife to be angry at your spouse when they don't do what you expect them to do. But that's not the way Jesus says ought to characterize our behavior. Remember, he's talking to us about citizens of the kingdom of heaven, those that are following him. We ought not be people who are angry. Give a second illustration. 
Our second picture that Jesus gives here is lust. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. Dallas Willard put it this way in Jesus speaking about this issue. He said, Jesus' audience included multitudes of men who thought of themselves as good and right in their sexual life because they did not do the specific thing forbidden by the commandment. The legalistic standards, uh, according to the religious leaders and Pharisees, was that they had not committed adultery, so they were right before God sexually. And what Jesus is saying is, no, the issue of sexual sin goes deeper than merely the act of some kind of adultery. Yes, it obviously includes that. Adultery is devastating for marriage and for families and for homes and for the life of the community. It's wrong. It's sinful. But Jesus says it's not sufficient if you just haven't committed adultery. What I'm telling you is if you've looked at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery with her, with her in your heart. You have sinned against God. It is something that Jesus is deepening the issue of sin to address what's going on in our lives. Now, in our sex-crazed, skin-bare Western culture, the issues are, we are tempted to think that the issues of sexuality and temptation towards sexuality, and particularly with pornography, are worse today than they ever have been. I just want to remind you the temptations towards sexual sin have been around for ages and for millennia, and it was just as possible to deal with that in Jesus' day as it is in our day. Maybe the opportunities are more today. Maybe the prevalence is more easily accessible. But the sin is the same. And Jesus wants us to understand that we're not to be sinful in this way. Now, let me, let me share something that, that Jesus clarifies here. He uses the phrase, with lustful intent. He's not saying that to be tempted is to sin. I've been around some folks who struggle in this area and they beat themselves up over every temptation or tempt, tempt, uh, tempting look or tempting uh, image that has come across their screen or come across their eyes. Martin Luther put it this way as a clarification. It is, possible, it is impossible to keep the devil from shooting evil thoughts and lusts into your heart. But see to it that you do not let such arrows stick there and take root, but tear them out and throw them away. What Jesus is telling us here is that lustful look, the intention to lust, or the length, lengthening of our gaze that would allow lust to take root in our hearts, that's what's sinful. And Jesus doesn't want us to tolerate that in our lives at all. He wants us to turn away from it. He wants us to reject it. Folks, the sin of lust is not something that any of us are immune to. It reaches into the hearts of teenagers as well as senior adults. It is just as likely to be in the hearts of those who are in church pews as it is as those in church pulpits. Folks, I've had my share of struggles in this area and had to have awkward conversations with both my wife and my accountability partner over the years. It's not a fun set of conversations to have. I've talked with people in our church family and people in relational communities who are struggling with the issue of lust and by extension pornography and all that it entails. And believe me, it is a devastating and terrible sin that can ruin hearts, that can ruin lives, that can ruin families, and that can ruin marriages. So Jesus says that we are to deal with it violently. 
he uses hyperbolic language here. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He doesn't mean that literally, that we're to pluck our eyes out, cut our hands off. But he does mean that, that we are to do whatever it takes not to sin in these areas. There are some things that that might mean for you and me. I'm not going to be legalistic and tell you exactly what you've got to do to never think a lustful thought or look at a lustful image. But there are some things that might need to happen in your life based on the way that you're tempted and the way that you struggle. For some of us, doing whatever it takes to deal with this sin will mean canceling streaming services, not allowing those images to even come into our homes. For some of us, it might mean getting a dumb phone rather than a smartphone. And if you're afraid of what people will think if you walk around with a flip phone, they make dumb phones that look like smartphones where they really only can communicate with you, but they don't have unfettered access to the Internet or to images or to apps. Sometimes you might, some of you might need to invest in covenant eyes, which guards against things that you would see on screens. For some of you, you need to stop reading those novels. I had a church member after one of our services this morning tell me just that, that at a period of time in, in her life, she had to stop reading those novels because of the, uh, the fantasies that it was driving up in her heart and her mind. She had to just quit doing that. For some of us, it might mean that we need to stop scrolling through social media channels. Let me speak to you as parents for just a moment. There's not a, a parent or grandparent in this room that would hand their teenager pornographic material in a magazine. But when we give our children unfettered access through internet and apps on their cell phones, we're essentially giving them the same level of access, in some ways even more access, to more pornographic material that would make the writers or the publishers of those magazines blush by what's accessible just through internet and through streaming apps and through apps that you can put on your phone. Let me speak to your parents for a moment. I know that you don't want to have the awkward conversations with your teenagers about what they're seeing and what they're doing and what's going on on their phones. But I promise you, you would rather have that conversation now before it destroys them and turns into a full-blown pornographic addiction. And by the way, just to say this lovingly, I've had some of those conversations with parents, with teenagers, and, and those challenges that come up in the life of ministry and the life of pastoring. There are a lot of times those kids are glad they got caught because they knew it was sinful. But they didn't know a means by which to stop. They didn't know how to work past that. And knowing they've got someone that loves them and cares about them and wants to help them deal with that sin and deal with that issue means that they've got a chance at having some victory through it and over it. Some of you might be in the room and you might be struggling in these areas. I'll tell you, don't struggle alone. If you want to come talk to us as a pastoral staff or group of elders... We can either connect you with a counselor or we can help you walk through some of these issues. There are many of us in our church family who have worked through this in our discipleship groups and in our relationships and accountability groups. We can provide some answers and some help in some of these areas. The bottom line, what Jesus wants is for us to be whole and holy, not just in what we do or don't do outwardly, but in what is going on in our hearts and in our minds. That's different than what our world teaches. And that's the whole point. Jesus wants us to be right and righteous on the inside, not just the outside. He goes to a third picture here. 
picture of divorce. Look in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, or say that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What's going on here? Well, there are some theological things going on as well as some pastoral things going on. First, the theological things. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees and religious leaders had these, this tension between uh, competing notions of what was allowed with divorce. There were, there were a group of Pharisees that believed that you, could, you couldn't divorce for any reason whatsoever. Very strict. There was another group of Pharisees that believed you could divorce for any reason whatsoever. And, and some of them argued that a husband had a right to divorce his wife if she began to look more plain as she got older. Some argued that you could divorce your wife if she burned your food, made you a bad meal, spent too much time with mom and dad rather than time in the home. That, that, that was what was going on. And so they asked Jesus about it. You can read the complimentary text in Matthew chapter 19. And what Jesus is doing here in this section on divorce, and I'm going to speak pastorally on it in a minute, but what he's doing here, he's reminding us that there are more important things to think about than the conditions for divorce. So you see, the Pharisees were preoccupied with the grounds for divorce, but Jesus was focused on the institution of marriage. He isn't looking at the exceptions or, or dealing with the exceptions per se. He's trying to deal with the hearts and the actions of those that are a part of his family, that are a part of his kingdom, that are citizens in his kingdom. Moreover, when someone was divorced in, in our day and age, if a divorce happens and it's heartbreaking when it does, there are legal protections in place and there are ways in which the wives who are affected by a divorce can have an income either because the husband pays child support or alimony or because she can get a job. But in Jesus' day, the first century, there were a, a whole lot of limitations that the women faced if they were divorced. They really only had three options. They could go back and live with a family member if they were allowed to. They could become a prostitute or they could remarry and thereby commit adultery, according to what Jesus said. And we read this section and we think Jesus is harping on the women who might commit adultery if they're, if they're divorced. No, he's really aiming at the men because here's what happens. If the man divorced the wife, he was forcing her into something that would cause her to sin. So the issue he's really getting at here is Jesus is saying to the men in his audience, if you divorce your wife, you're putting her in a situation where the only means by which she can provide for herself it's to marry someone else and thereby cause her to commit adultery. You're not only sinning by what you're doing, but you're causing her to sin by what she's doing. So Jesus is elevating the view of marriage in this particular context. Beloved, as I think about this section of Scripture, I understand that some of you in this room have already been through a divorce. Some of you are going through a period of time of marital separation. Some of you, you may experience a divorce in the future. And I want to tell you that I, I understand. I've talked with many of you. I've, you've sat in my office and shared your, shared your stories with me. I've cried with you. I promise you I cry over your situations and, and bear your burdens in prayer with and for you. And so I want, to, I want to deal with these things carefully. I grieve with you. I grieve for you. But I do want you to know that Jesus hasn't changed his perspective on this issue. He would look at our culture of no-fault divorce and say the very thing he says in Matthew chapter 5. Why? Because he wants the people who follow him 
to be undergirded by a supernatural empowerment that would keep a marriage together. Say, how in the world can husbands and wives recover from sins and recover from anger and vitriol? How is that possible? Can I tell you, it's only possible if a third person is a part of the marriage. And that's God. The only way for my wife and I, and we love each other deeply, to remain committed to one another and, and remain faithful to one another is if she's empowered by the Holy Spirit to forgive me when I act like a jerk. And I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit to forgive her when she burns a meal, which she's never done. But I, I, I just wanted to bring a little bit of levity. My only point is this. We need the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way it's possible. Some of you are going through this and you're, you're heartbroken over it. Say, is there a possibility of experiencing forgiveness? And, and rec Yes. I'm going to tell you, Jesus gives us these pictures because this is what he wants us to look like if we're his Christ followers. But I want to remind you, and we'll get to this at the end of the sermon too, Jesus died for us knowing we couldn't fulfill this perfectly. Jesus is the very embodiment of grace and forgiveness and mercy. And I'm going to tell you something. Those of you that are experiencing the struggle and the devastation, heartbreaking homes and in marriages, Jesus loves you. He's not against you. He will walk with you. He will grieve with you, and he's the only way you can find healing and help. Let me work through these last three pictures a little more quickly. The first service, I preached more than 50 minutes, and I can't do that in this service. I didn't do that in the last service. So let's walk through these next three a little more quickly. He deals with honesty uh, in the next paragraph. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make your one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The Pharisees and religious leaders had this uh, particular mindset about oath-taking. They basically put it this way. They said, if you swear by God, then you have to keep your promise. But if you don't swear by God, it's not important that you keep your promise. You're not profaning God's name. So essentially what it was, they cared more about the words that were used in an oath than they cared about keeping your word. It wasn't about honesty. It was about not profaning God's name. And Jesus cuts through all of that and says, hold on a second. That's not it at all. You need to keep your word. Why do we need to be word keepers? Because Jesus is a word keeper. Let me tell you something. You and I have broken promises and not been honest. Jesus has never broken a promise. When you're struggling and you can't figure out how you can make it, you can remember the promises of God. He has never failed me. He's never failed you. He promises to be with us always. And he wants the people who are his citizens to be people who are truth keepers. Let me say this. If you and I as Christians living in the 21st century... Today, Wilkes County, North Carolina, if you and I simply keep our word in our business interactions, in our family interactions, in our job interactions, in our church interactions, if we simply keep our word and let our yes be yes and our no be no, I'm going to tell you something. We will look different than almost every other person in society. Keeping your word isn't something that's of value to culture, but it is something that's of value to Jesus. He wants to change us from within. Let me give you a fifth picture. 
picture of retaliation or dealing with those who, who uh, don't like us. You've heard there was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. If anyone would see you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If, if somebody gets me, I'm going to get back at them. In fact, I'm not just going to get even. I'm going to get beyond even. I'm going to get them in such a way that they're never going to want to get me back again. Some of you understand that. You know, if you got, if you got kids, if you're a sibling, and your sibling gets at you, what are you going to do to your sibling? You're going to get them back. And, 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 and bless God, you're going to just dare them to mess with you again. And, of course, what are they going to do? They're going to mess with you again. And that's family interactions, right? That's not the way we're to be as Christians. Followers of Jesus, he wants our hearts to be different. Uh, the, the picture here is that um, the Roman soldiers could force someone to carry their baggage a mile. Jesus says, if they do that, walk with them too. Why, why does he want his citizens, his, those that are a part of his kingdom, to do that? Because he wants the world to know that we're not the same as everybody else. That we're different in character and in conduct. He wants our conduct to look like that of Jesus. That's what Jesus did. And by the way, that, that, that phrase in the earlier part of the paragraph, if anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn him the other also. We do need to qualify that for just a second. He's talking about an insult. Uh, whether it is a verbal insult or a physical insult of being slapped in the face. He's not talking about standing there and accepting abuse. That's not what the text is talking about. It's not talking about pure pacifism either. That we're never to seek justice or we're never to pursue justice for those that would harm us. That is not what Jesus is saying in the text. What he's saying in the text is if we've been insulted up to being slapped across the cheek. I mean, I can recover from a slap across the cheek. So can you. I can recover from an insult. So can you. We need to take on the character of our Savior. Because if you look forward in the Gospel of Matthew... Jesus was arrested, mocked, lied about, beaten, slapped. And do you know how many times he retaliated? None. The whole point of what Jesus is getting at in these pictures is saying, I want you to look like me. I want you to look different than everybody else looks in the world. And, and probably the hardest one he gets at is in paragraph number six, picture number six, love your enemies. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. That's the Greek word agape. It means selfless love. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. Sends rain on the just and unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. i just say something about this text that Jesus is getting at. Do you realize that the mafia and the Nazis and thugs and gangs love those who love them? I mean, if, if you treat a, a gang boss well, they're going to treat you well. If, if you were a part of the Third Reich in Nazi Germany and you, you built up Hitler, they would take care of you too. The point Jesus is getting at, it, it is insufficient to show our love for others if the only people we love are those who love us back, are those who are kind to us, are those who are nice to us. What Jesus is getting at is the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are those who love those who hate them. 
who love those who are of a different political persuasion, who love those who despise them, who love those who say bad things about them. That's what Jesus is getting at. He wants us to love those who are our enemies. Why does he want that? Because, folks, that's exactly who Jesus was for us. Some of you are sitting here in the, in the room this morning, and you're like, um, Pastor, how in the world is Matthew 5 possible in my life? Maybe it's not one of these pictures that you struggle with. Maybe it's several of them, like me. Maybe it's several of them that rub up against your attitude and your actions, your, your heart and your hands. How is it possible? Well, for starters, you have to be in a relationship with Jesus for it ever to be possible. There's no way that you sitting in the room apart from Christ can live according to the teaching that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. It's impossible. Some of you sitting in the room, the reason that you can't get deal with your issues of lust or deal with your issues of, of anger or deal with your issues of hate and anger toward those who hate you, the reason you can't get a handle on those things is because you're not intended in your own strength and ability to deal with those unrighteous behaviors. You need Jesus. You need forgiveness. You need a relationship with God. Paul put it this way theologically in Romans chapter 5. He said, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, you can read there, enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus embodied Matthew 5, 43. Do you realize he loved us when we were his enemies? I'll say something to all of us. All of us act like the enemies of God more often than we ought to. We all act in ways that are in discord with Scripture. And I want to tell you, God knew that you would act that way even after coming to conversion. He knew you would act that way before you came to Christ. And Jesus still went to the cross to die for your sins and my sins. He died so that we would not only experience forgiveness and life and eternity, but folks like our praise team sang about, he died so that we would live like him on this earth. The entry point for us embodying the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus teaches it here in Matthew chapter 5, and applying the conduct of a kingdom citizen, is for us to enter into a relationship with Jesus. Christian, you're in the room, you're saying, okay, I understand that. I've trusted Jesus to be my Savior. I need his empowerment. I need his, his embodiment in my own life. But how do I really do this? How do I put this into practice? Well, did you realize that the more time you spend with someone, the more you begin to think like them? Studies show that if you're around a person a lot, your brain waves actually change to become more like that person. That's why you husbands and wives can finish each other's sentences before you even speak them. That's why friends can finish each other's sentences before you speak them. And I don't want to oversimplify this, but let me just say this lovingly to you as a church family. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more you will look like Jesus. Dallas Willard illustrates it this way. In, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, he talks about, he talks about traveling. We need to think about this in terms of destination. He says, if I'm in California and I need to go to New York City, I buy a plane ticket and I get on a plane and I go to New York City. And then he says this, I don't get any credit for not going to Washington, D.C. or Atlanta, Georgia by way of going to New York City. I'm not even thinking about going to Atlanta, Georgia or Washington, D.C. I'm thinking about going to New York City. Beloved, part of our problem with Matthew chapter 5 and other places in Scripture when we're convicted of our sin 
So we spend all our time thinking about how sinful we are. And beloved, we are sinful. We need to confess. We need to repent. We need to come to God at Matthew chapter 5, 3 and say we're poor in spirit and we need the cleansing and forgiveness of God. We do need to do that. But our focus does not need to be on our shortfalls and our failures. Our focus needs to be on our destination. It needs to be on Jesus. I'm going to tell you something. The more you spend time in the word of Jesus and talking to Jesus through prayer and gathering with the people of Jesus at church, and being around those who are in discipleship groups and Sunday school classes and relational environments where they're modeling who Jesus is, can I tell you something that happens? The Holy Spirit, in His glorious supernatural way, begins to make us look more and more like Jesus. One of the greatest ways that you can overcome some of these sinful tendencies is to simply focus on Christ instead of on the stuff that brings temptation your way. You know what will happen eventually? You'll lose your taste for the sins. You'll get to a place where, oh, you don't stop those outbursts of anger entirely. Or at least I haven't yet. But you're convicted about them a whole lot more quickly. And you can't stand being in an irreconciled situation with someone. You may not ever lose the temptations that come your way through images and videos. But I'll tell you this. The more you stay away from that, the far quicker you notice that it's a temptation and you don't want anything to do with it because you're near a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ, but you want to look like what Jesus taught about in Matthew 5. Would you come to the altar and talk to me? Would you put it on a tear tab and say, I want to know more about following Jesus, about this kind of life that Jesus wants to give? Would you trust Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? Christian, maybe some of these pictures do challenge current practices and behaviors in your life. Confess them. Go make it right with that person. Go make it right with Jesus. And then go spend some time with Jesus. Get in His Word and seek Him and let Him change you. Stand with me if you will. Our Father, we come to you in this moment. And Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you love us. We don't deserve it. We're guilty. We're lawbreakers. We're unrighteous on the outside and on the inside. But I'm so thankful that in your mercy and compassion, you did not cast us away, but you came down to us to meet us where we are, to convict us, to change us, to transform us. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room today. I pray for those that need your transforming work in any of these pictures, any of these areas. pray, Lord Jesus, that you would meet them where they are, that you would hear their confession, that you would cleanse them of their unrighteousness, and that you would help them to seek you and you would change them from the inside. Lord, I know there are folks in our worship service today that do not yet know you as Savior and Lord. I pray that you convict them of their sin. She would open their eyes to the holiness of Christ, to the forgiveness that's possible in a relationship with Jesus, and that you would change them, help them to know that when they were an enemy, you died for them, help them to come to faith in you, and like Millie, help them to put their faith in you and follow follow you in baptism. Lord, I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 